So we're looking at the longer ending of uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark ends at verse 8. Um, and the problem is that it ends at verse 8. And if you read verse 8, it says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And it's kind of this downer of an ending, right? Um, And you feel, it feels incomplete. We're missing things like appearances of Jesus. We're missing things like um, joy and rejoicing uh, at the resurrection. Uh, We're missing uh, all kinds of details that we have in the other, other gospels. And so... Uh, people have felt like, well, what happened? Did, did they lose the last page of the Gospel of Mark? Did somebody rip off the last few verses and we missed the, the rest of the ending? Or did Mark end it this way intentionally? Um, the longer ending feels in some ways incomplete. And we talked about kind of literarily or theologically what Mark is doing with this, right? Uh, kind of a feeling that it's, in some ways, an evangelistic ending, isn't it? Um, because Mark ends uh, almost abruptly with no evidence except for an empty tomb. And what do we have? We have a message from a heavenly messenger, which is the gospel. And we have the evidence of a changed life. Um, I was one way and now I'm another. There's no sightings of Jesus. There's no... Um, there's no evidence beyond what we say, right? And isn't that the way we communicate the gospel? Are you going to believe or not? Do you believe the message? Have you looked at all the evidence that in the prior 15 chapters? Do you believe? Um, and so I think Mark, Mark has method in his madness. It's rather creative when you think, of it, think about it that way. But the church... Um, uses the gospel. The gospels are not, they're not, you know, um, inscribed in gold and hung on the wall. Uh, the gospels are working documents for the church. They are their, their catechism. They are the way that they teach uh, the next generation about who Jesus is. And of course, all four are not bound together at this point, Right? And so we don't have the broader version of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, some churches may just have Mark. And there becomes a sense that we got to add something to this, an addendum, right? Some kind of a appendix so that uh, there's a complete version of the resurrection story to add to the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And death, yeah. The uh, the last episode of Michael Heiser's uh, Naked Bible podcast, he talked about how there's little uh, doubt in, in most scholars' minds that that books and passages were edited for whatever reason. For instance, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, you start out saying that you know the I 
saw, a, you know, a vision. And then in verse 3 or 4, it says, then, you know, Ezekiel, the son of, was, with, you know, and it's like, why would you go in, in three, four verses, go from first person to third person? And that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And so I, I think here it's, it's another case of someone at some point uh, got an inspiration. I mean, it, someone added this piece on. And when you read it, it's pretty clear that it was added on. So the question is, how do we treat it? Okay, now we know that books in the Old Testament have been edited. Some of them were probably collections of prophecies that were put together into a book of prophecy. And so you get that sense of editing, but it's still considered, all of it is considered inspired scripture. Um, this piece seems to be added a good bit later, probably by about 135, 140 AD. Um, it's added onto the back of the book. And um, so I, I gave you some, some papers last week, and on those, um, I kind of broke down uh, and, and the, the verses 9 through 20, and you can see kind of the source information, where they come from in the other gospel. So if we look at it, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping uh, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them. They did not believe it. Um, so if you pause there, that just sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Sounds a lot like John's story of Mary Magdalene. And we have all kinds of information about Mary Magdalene. He seems to have gleaned that. The, the little piece about of, out of whom he drove seven demons, that's poached from Luke chapter 8. Um, what's interesting here is that Mary Magdalene has shown up in the text of Mark three times, right? Um, in the last chapter, chapter 15, we have verse 40, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Salome. Then it comes, then they rolled the stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And then we have in 16.1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, came. And then we have uh, here in verse 9, and he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Well, why does he introduce her now, the fourth time he mentions her in the immediate context, and not the first time, right? So it's evidence, it's an internal evidence that this is an addition, Okay, that this is a piece that's added um, and it's not it's not original to the text because Mark is a pretty organized writer. All right. Um, there's some other uh, external evidence. Um, we have it. It's missing from some of the oldest uh, manuscripts that we trust. Uh, so we look at the manuscript evidence and some of the oldest manuscripts don't include it. And it just starts to pop up somewhere about about the mid, you know, about mid-second century. And so we figure a monk somewhere said, uh, we got to add some here. He probably had access to the other three Gospels, and he made a collection uh, of information that he could peg, stick onto the back of Mark. And then it becomes part of 
the textual tradition moving forward. That's why it's included, but yet it's doubted. And so in most of our Bibles, it says early, the earliest manuscripts and some of the ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. We also have a number of words. Um, you know, the, the scholars look very carefully at the words and the vocabulary that's used. And there's a number of words that show up and ways of saying things that aren't characteristic to Mark. So, for example, let's say you have you have a girlfriend who lives who, who's going to college in another part of the uh, uh, of the country, and she's writing you letters every week because she's so in love, right? And so you're reading her letters every week, and then you get this letter that just doesn't sound like her. She says things differently than she normally says them. You can tell it just feels different. Her roommate. It was her roommate who wrote this, right? Her new boyfriend. Her new boyfriend, right? Oh, and so um, entirely possible. So that's when when scholars read this, especially those who are, you know, Greek geeks. They read this and they say, it's just, it's not quite the same. And even when we read it, it's not the same. The cadence, the, uh, the tone of it, it's more of a, Jesus is like constantly um, scolding the disciples. And we don't see that in Mark. Um, and it, so it doesn't carry the tone of the rest of the gospel. Um, there's also a point where he calls him Lord Jesus. Well, in verse 19, and after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, um, Mark never says Lord Jesus. Just, it's not a way he refers to Jesus. And so, again, internal evidence that this is probably foreign material. So this first piece probably comes from, from, um, from John. Uh, if we look at verse 12, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So that little section, where do you think that comes from? That's 100% Luke 24. That is Luke if I ever saw Luke. All right? That is a, that is a summary of the story of the road to Emmaus. Okay? No question. And um, so that was borrowed from Luke. And then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Where does that come from? That's Matthew. That's Matthew 28, if I ever met it, right? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, that will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. My goodness. Um, uh, this is a smattering of stuff that could have come from different sources, right? Uh, this idea of laying hands on the sick and they'll get well. That sounds like James. Um, James is written very, very early, um, possibly the earliest book written in the New Testament. So the book of James is circulating very early. Um, this idea of picking up snakes may come from the book of Acts, right? When the Apostle Paul gets bit by a snake. But, you know, now it's, now it's kind of come to snake handling. 
Um, that's, this is where snake handling comes from. Uh, don't build doctrine on a piece of, pat, of scripture that is debated about whether it's scripture or not. Right? So stay away from the snakes, all right? Will you? Um, after the Lord, Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat there at the right hand of God. And then his disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his words by the signs that accompanied it. Um, I don't know. Probably comes the, the ascension story could, could come from Acts. It could come from uh, Luke or, or, or certainly Matthew. Um, so you can see that this is a combination of information. Kind of, in essence, he borrowed from pieces of existing scripture and created a summary to draw Mark to a conclusion. So... Um, the verse 8 ending is incomplete, feels incomplete, and the verse 20 ending feels incongruous, right? Just doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of the book. So, but what does it tell us? Why is it here? Well, it's here because of history. Um, but I think it tells us that the church, it tells us a couple things. Number one, it tells us that the resurrection is very important to the early church. This was added very early on. And if you think about it, some, you know, modern liberal scholars would say, Jesus was a great man. He was a great teacher. He didn't die and rise from the dead. That's all a fairy tale. That was added two or 300 years later so that they could add some miraculous component to Jesus the rabbi. Balderdash. Here we have evidence of a church that believes firmly in the resurrection. So much so that when the gospel doesn't make it clear enough, they add extra material to it to make sure because they want to teach their children in Sunday school class and they want to teach their new converts about the fuller story of the resurrection details uh, of show, Jesus. It shows that the, the fear and the trembling and the confusion of the women changes right. when you see something as dramatic as the empty tomb you have to process so the it ends with them in their initial reaction but then that moves further along and as jesus appears as this is processed then the reality of the resurrection hits everybody and they say oh and they move towards spreading the gospel indeed indeed so so here we have this longer ending um for the most part, it is, it's pretty safe because it's a summary statement that was drawn from other pieces of inspired scripture. But it itself, I would not consider inspired scripture um, because it's evidence that it was added later and it wasn't part of the original autograph uh, of the book. Um, so... The only real questionable section is this section here that kind of talks about picking up snakes and drinking poison. Um, so avoid that, okay? Avoid that. Uh, we do see evidence that the Lord protected the Apostle Paul when he ran into a poisonous snake. Um, but 
he wasn't intentionally handling snakes, uh, and we shouldn't handle snakes, um, and those kinds of things. Of course, the speaking in tongues and those kinds of things we see clearly were a, a tradition of the early church, and we see it in the book of Acts, uh, I mean, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and other places that describe uh, the use of tongues uh, in the primitive church. And uh, so that all, most of this is verified. Um, so. What's the deadly poison stuff? I wonder if that's symbolic. I mean, goes along with snake venom, I guess. Yeah. Was there any place else in the Bible that talks about the Poisoning. Nope. No, I don't know where. This guy must have been just, I don't know, potion master or something. I don't know. So anyway, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting for us to think about. Um, But again, the book ends at 8. And because we now, because we have the full collection of Scripture, we can fill in the gaps ourselves with the other Gospels. Um, And then we can appreciate the ending of Mark for what it is. Pretty dramatic, very faith-focused, right? Um, And it causes us to think. It causes us to stop and think, (coughs) will I believe or not? Will I take the evidence that's been presented in the book? And like the centurion at the foot of the cross say, this man must be the son of God? Or will I walk away in fear and trembling or in, um, in, in, in rebellion, uh, like the religious leaders, what will be my reaction to the message of the gospel? Okay. So that's our conclusion for the book of Mark. Uh, so thank the Lord. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, this gospel for me is, is very, very special. Um, it is, it's so early. It's so raw. It's so human. I think it's, it's so powerfully written. And, um, you know, we talked early about the idea of looking at your fish. And we've spent a year now looking at this fish. You've got a pretty good picture of this fish in your mind. And now as we lay Matthew next to it and Luke and John, you begin to see different nuances, different pictures, different facets of who Jesus is. And, and each one gives us, a, gives us a different view of our Savior. And so um, it's important. And it's important to study them for what they are. And then as we compare them, it helps us to ask new questions, right? Because we look at, now we look at, I look at Matthew and I say, wait a minute, he's diverging from Mark here. Why? What, what does he want to tell me? Okay, if Mark went this way and it meant that, and now Matthew's going this way, what's he trying to say about Jesus? And so by asking that set of questions, you get a whole different, you'll see, see things you've never seen before, okay? And so that's why this idea of God's given us four different pictures, set them side by side and begin to compare and contrast, and we begin to see um, different things. We're going to spend a little bit of time. We have six weeks, now five, right, to talk about, and I have a little five-lesson study here that I, I put together for a small group that I belong to, 
and uh, we went on a little retreat. And so they said, uh, where'd you put together Bible study? Is that right? So um, it's actually the first, uh, the first f- four chapters of the, of the book of John. And um, so I, what I'd like to do is for us to go through these chapters, and I put together some notes for you. So bring your packet with you each time. I'll send them around. Give me the, the leftovers afterwards. But it's, um, uh, we're going to look, look at the prologue, uh, the theological introduction to the book of John. And then John gives us a unique view of the calling of the disciples. Unlike the synoptics. He gives us more information, and there's, there's quite a bit in, in this, and I want to look at it from the perspective of the disciples. I want to look at it from the perspective of evangelism, um, because I think John has a special eye toward sharing the message of the gospel, and uh, his disciples were called for certain reasons and for certain purposes, and we'll take it all the way up to the woman at the well which is the ultimate evangelistic conversation, okay? Um, There's probably no greater detailed um, uh, personal evangelistic conversation in the Bible than the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. And so we're going to kind of trace it all the way through there. We've got some great things to look at with Nicodemus, um, also uh, the changing of the water into wine, and certainly some discussions about John the Baptist, who is, um, who is a model for us uh, about how to respond to Jesus. So just some interesting things. We're just going to take a little time to look at that now that the gospel is fresh in our mind and we have one fish solidly laid before us on the tray. We're going to take uh, John and we're going to lay him out. We're going to pull him out of the jar and lay him out uh, in all his glory and take a look and compare the two for a little while. All right? So that's the plan, man. Sound all right? Okay.